Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome once again to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast, if you've not managed to catch it before, where I talk to various guests, some of which you may have heard of, that tell me the five things from their life that they've chosen to put in a time capsule. They can pick anything of any nature from any time in their life. The only complication is that four of the things have to be something they cherish or have loved and would like to revisit, and one of them is something they find embarrassing, annoying, or even painful, and would like to bury in the ground and forget. And these are, usually, the starting points for our rather rambling conversation. My guest in this episode is the English cookery writer and celebrity cook, Sophie Grigson. Sophie's first article, published in 1983 in the Sunday Express magazine, was entitled 50 Ways with Potatoes. Now, you might think that would finish anyone's career, but she has since written columns for The Evening Standard, The Sunday Times and The Independent, along with dozens of other magazines. Sophie's television debut came in 1993 with the 16-part series Grow Your Greens, Eat Your Greens on Channel 4. And she's just about to release the second series of her cookery programme, Slice of Italy, on the Food Network and various other channels. I've seen it, and it's a delight. Sophie won the Guild of Food Writers Cookery Journalist of the Year Award in 2001, and since Food for Friends in 1987, Sophie has written over 20 books. Her cookery school, based in Oxford, was the first dedicated pop-up cookery school in the country, and she currently lives in Puglia, in the south of Italy, where she runs a small catering company, Truly Delicious, which is where she was lucky enough to be when I spoke to her about the five things from her life she'd want in her time capsule. Here is that chat. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hello, Sophie. How are you? I'm fine. I'm just going to move into my bedroom. Oh, cool. Yes, fine. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Lovely to meet you. Hold on, let me just unplug and plug in. Lovely to meet you. There's a feeling somewhere that we may have met a long time ago in Manchester. Yes, that rings a bell, you know. That would have been a long time ago. A long time ago. It was a. Did you study there? Just after I finished studying, I worked at Granada Television quite a long time. Oh, mind me. I might have met. I might go dark for a minute, but I am going to turn on the lights. I'm not just going to do this. (laughs) Are you in Puglia? I am in Puglia, yes. Oh, how marvellous. And lovely Puglia, yes. And it is. It's wonderful. Yeah. Have you been to Puglia? Do you know, I've never been to that part of Italy, no. Although I know it well, you know, (laughs) and uh, your company is named after the Trulies, isn't it? Yes, of which there are many. Many. It is a lovely, lovely area, and it's very different to the north of Italy, and Mm. uh, it has different charms, but it's just beautiful. People are lovely. The food's great. It's not a place where people go particularly, is it? Well, now much more. Do now they? much more, I think. Yes, mm. it, it's yeah. getting a bit more popular now, which is um, which is good in many yeah. ways. Then you suddenly go, oh, I've only been here four years, so I can hardly complain. <laughs> I'm a relative newcomer. What a brilliant move to make, though. It was, it was. I uh, Yes, just before my 60th birthday. Marvellous. I had my 60th birthday here in Boulia. So I didn't have any problem at all with 60. I hit 60, I thought, there we are, it's a number. Yeah. Do you know what really got me? It was hitting 65. I've got that next year. For me, in my head somewhere, it went, that's old age pensioner. You don't even get the pension. No. And it's also, it's then closer to 70, isn't it? Yeah. That seems a large number, doesn't it? And it also just seems so totally weird that we can possibly be that old. Absolutely. Ridiculous. I can still picture myself going through, you know, really, really skinny, lovely little shirts in Athletics Palace <laughs> and thinking, yeah, that's me. That's what I am. I'm <laughs> <laughs> still like that in my head. I'm still that person. Hey ho. Hey ho. You just have to sign, get on with it. Well, and we are. It's lovely. I mean, I've watched some of your programme. <laughs> I haven't actually yet seen one. Right. Yeah, no, I haven't seen the finished one yet. Because I can't just get them here that easily. No. Friends of mine do watch and I'm not sure quite how legal it is that they're watching them. But, you know, let's not go down that route. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I've seen the, the rough cuts when I've been doing the voiceovers. But, um, mm. yeah, it's quite exciting. Quite exciting. The second series going out. Very exciting, I think. Yeah. It looks gorgeous, of course, because, uh, well, what it looks to me like is it looks like Italy. Quite often when you have these programmes about people going around Italy and looking at food and things, they'll be sitting there with a beautiful Venice behind them or or the Bay of Naples and everything is sort of lined up. Yours is done in people's kitchens, in people's courtyards. It's really authentic, I think. It it is. It's as authentic as you can get with this kind of programme. I mean, it was one of the things that I really, really wanted, was it not to be about that kind of surface, which is wonderful and which we all love when we come on holiday. But for me, the pleasure thing down here is that I'm living in it so I can kind of find a little bit more about what's underneath and what people are really doing. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted to have. You know, so we do go to people's kitchens. We do meet real people. We go to my corner bar, which is a tiny little corner bar. Mm-hmm. Loves the people there. And, um, you know, it's, and that's, you know, it's what a luxury to be able to do that as well. Yeah. For me, it's very interesting. So I just hope people like it as well. Um, but, we, you know, pe- people here are so wonderful and so lovely and very funny. And they're very, they're very wedded to their food traditions. Mm. Which works sometimes, and sometimes it's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. It's something a bit different, and they give you a very odd look. 
But the world shrinks down, and that's not a problem, is it? Actually, it's, isn't it interesting how you can discover in those ways? I've got a friend who lives in Sicily, and his life is about the town he's in, the people he's with, and that becomes your world. And it's not the need to go everywhere else and see everything else is not necessary. Whereabouts in Sicily is he? Uh, Modica. Oh, oh, it's chocolate. Yes, lovely chocolate. I'm fascinated by Modica chocolate. Mm. Really interesting. So it's um, as they're using methods and words that are Mexican. Right. And they use a grinding machine, the grinding plate they use. And as they use the same word as they do using these machines in Mexico. So it, was, it has this incredible connection with Mexico. Well, of course, also that thing of having chilies in the chocolate. Yeah. They have, they have yeah. quite hot some of the chilies yeah. they have in that. Really, really fast. Oh, how interesting. Mm. Now contact in I'll put you in touch. He used to be an actor. His name is Ramsey Wilson Gilderdale. What a great name that is. What a name. Now, yeah. that is an epic name. <laughs> it's a brilliant name. But he's a lovely, lovely man. This is fantastic. I mean, I haven't been to Sicily for a long time, but... Mm. Yeah, I'm just moving around here trying to get comfortable. That's right, you get comfortable. With, and trying not to disturb my cat, which obviously is the most important thing. <laughs> Crucial. Rule, rule one's line. <laughs> Uh, I've always had a desire to do exactly what you've done, which is to sort of give up my life here and go and live in a foreign country. And Where get are you to know. Well, I live in Tunbridge Wells down in Kent, but I'm completely surrounded by... It's very lovely. I'm surrounded by my family and my grandchildren. They all live close by. So, yeah. you know, leaving that would be a chore. If it's a chore, then you don't do it. No. I, I mean, I was very lucky that when, you know, children off doing their thing and mm -hmm. Brexit looming... <laughs> yes, uh, and you know, it just seems totally the right time to do it. So, uh, and I've, you know, I'd always wanted to to travel, but uh, mm. and not to try to live somewhere different, and I'd never done it. And then finally, finally, that decision happened. Boom. Your mum had a connection with uh, with Italy, though, didn't she? She did. She came here a lot when she was younger, and she right. um, she travelled around Italy in the. 50s mm. uh, and studied here a bit. I mean, so she loved it. Yeah, she adored Italy. So who wouldn't? Well, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, never mind. Okay. Well, but what we're going to talk about, Sophie, we're going to talk about five things from your life that you choose to put into a time capsule. Yeah, it's not easy, but I am there. Wonderful. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see where it takes us. That's the point, I suppose, really. So um, so what would be the first thing you'd choose? So the first thing I would choose, right. So basically, we're um, in uh, in Puglia. So for Puglia, the olive tree is phenomenally important. Oh, my God, sorry, my bed's just collapsing. I'm not sure. I'm just going to move. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just changing the recording here. It's all quite all right. Okay, everyone. Uh, olive trees. Well, I bet that's what's happening to the olive trees. So, yeah, the olive tree is... Um, Phenomenally important to Puglia. Puglia has, uh, until recently, produced 40% of all of Italy's olive oil. Right. A long history, going back to the Romans. Uh, there are some amazing olive trees here. That there's, um, I know some people who have trees that they think, well, they have lots of trees that they had dated properly. They're Roman plants. They're 2,000 years old. No. And they've got one tree, which I think it goes back to the Misapian tribe, which is the tribe here for, and they think that's 3,000 years old. Good God. So, absolutely. But the reason I particularly, well, the olive, the olive tree is kind of, is so important to the Mediterranean culture all the mm. way around the Mediterranean, but it's under threat. So this is actually a bit of a, it's a love tragedy thing. For the olive tree, when somebody digs up this time capsule, 
Yeah. And I don't know how long wait, how far away it might be two hundred, say years, should we say two hundred, three hundred years? That's very much up to you. There may not be any olive trees left. That would be a terrible, terrible tragedy. It's a total tragedy. Um, and is that global warming? No, it well, I mean, I'm sure that you can slot that in somewhere, but no, the uh, so Puglia has been hit by this um Puglian olive trees are being decimated by uh bacteria called Xylella. And even in the just the four years that I've been here. I've seen it's, it's moving up the Pulian Peninsula. Uh, and it was, I think it came here about nine, arrived nine years ago. They think it arrived in a consignment of Caminias, I think, from Costa Rica. I don't right. know, it's quite sure. And it started around the port town of Gallipoli, beautiful port town, town mm-hmm. and it's gradually moving up Pulia. Uh, and it's destroyed such a huge area. Somebody said it was destroyed millions of trees already. Wow. So it's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. And if you drive, I live in the centre of Puglia. You drive towards the south, actually not very far, maybe about 10, 10 kilometres from me, you start seeing the trees with xylella in them. Mm. And you drive towards Lecce, which is the main town in the south uh, of Puglia, or over to mm-hmm. Gallipoli on the west coast. Around there, it's like there's been some kind of, I don't know, nuclear war. I don't know, whatever it is. If you feel that it's one that affects trees, there's just field after field of dead tree. God. So the reason I particularly want to put an olive tree in there is that although this, there's this terrible thing happening, there is money being put into research. I suspect not enough. I don't know whether any of it's being siphoned off or it shouldn't be. Apparently it's now hit Greece and there's money being poured into it in Greece. But if, if. They don't work out how to at least control it. Mm. The whole of the Mediterranean will end up losing their olive trees. That's extraordinary, isn't it? So it it started in Puglia, did it? Yes, yeah. Okay, it, it apparently came in Puglia into I think about nine, ten years ago. Right. And um, you know, here we are. We love. You know, we all love olive oil. We use. It, I use it a lot here, and we yeah. assume it's one of those things that is just eternal. And it's not just that, is it? As a cook, as a chef, mm. you know, an expert in this area, really, you'll know the nature, the completely different nature of every area's taste yeah. of olive oil. They're, they're yeah. extraordinary. I mean, it's like tasting a wine, really, isn't it? Absolutely. And olive oil, you know, it depends. It, it is, it, it, it's very similar to wine in the sense that it depends on, you know, the terroir, the, 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 where the actual landfill, the climate there, mm-hmm. the microclimate variety, the way the trees are pollinated, when the olives are picked and crushed. Yes. So there's, there, I mean, the world of olive oil is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you do worry under those circumstances that, all right, we, in many ways, with sort of uh, these problems in the past, have found a solution, we've found a way of protecting it. But that often means that the diversity goes, that, in fact, you say, well, we've got a species that is resistant. Right. Mm. And the others all disappear. Well, that, that's absolutely possible. At the moment here in Puglia, there are a couple of, I mean, I don't have any land, so I'm not as expert on it as some, many people, but there are a couple of uh, varieties of, of olive which are more resistant. Right. Uh, I don't think they're totally resistant, they're more resistant. And, of course, those are the ones that people are replanting where they can replant. Mm-hmm. But it is, it, yeah, you're absolutely right. And lots of the sort of the many, many varieties of, of olive that are grown around me are very much in danger. Mm. I mean, there are 
there are some bright, I think people, people are saying that you know, if, you, if you really treat your plants well and you give them, you, know, you treat the soil and you give them every chance to survive, they can survive. Right. But I think, you know, all of those of us who cook with olive oil, and we've always been told, you know, we know olive oil is delicious, obviously, mm-hmm. um, but it's also incredibly good for you. It's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a positively healthful thing. Yes. We think back to our younger days when certainly parents of friends of ours or even our own mm-hmm. parents would describe Mediterranean food as oily, yes. you know, as if it were yes. some sort of insult. <laughs> Exactly, and you know, people saw the fact that when you could only buy olive oil in the UK in the in the chemist. Yes. <laughs> so we've kind of come a long way since those days, and now we appreciate that that's richness and that just you know, olive oil just adds something so beautiful to food. Now it's something I'm appreciating more and more living down here. Mm. So I kind of want the world to know that we need to preserve olive oil and olive tree. And that's why I want one in our time capsule. Well, very good, because I mean I didn't know this, so why didn't I know this? Why don't I know that the olive trees in Italy are under threat? It's ridiculous. We should all be making an enormous effort to save them. Well, I will say the one person who really, she did a lot of ways, Helen Mirren, because she has a house further south, mm-hmm. and she's done quite a lot of campaigning, so I hope she'll carry on doing that. Good, yes. So she's in an area where there is isn't more devastation, I think. Yeah, I have a cousin who lives, again, in Sicily. She has, I think, about a 1,000 olive trees on land. And every year, her and her husband, in their 70s, go out there and harvest it all, then take it to the press, the local press, have it turned into olive oil. It is the most peppery olive oil I've ever tasted. It's, in- it's incredible. You could only really use it for certain types of cooking. It's so peppery. But uh, it's gorgeous. One of the things I've learned down here... The pepperiness come out of when the olives are picked. So the earlier you pick them, they have that fresher, grassier flavor, more deep pepperiness. Right. Here, a lot of people mature their olive oil, which I'd always thought, you know, olive oil doesn't keep, it's an oil, it goes off. But here, I was talking to somebody, to a neighbor of mine, and we were having this discussion about when we like to have our, oil, our olive oil. Because as you mature it, she was saying she likes to use her about a year to two years after it's been harvested. Right. Much more buttery and soft. Yeah, it's a lovely thing. It's just a gorgeous thing to have in the time capsule. I think that uh, whenever it's open, people will appreciate it. It throws me back. It's interesting how life changes, isn't it? It throws me back. The first time I went abroad was to Italy, just outside of Rome. And we went out for an evening, all these people staying in this large palazzo uh, as a group. We went out to a restaurant and the man said to me, what would you like for dinner? And I said, uh, uh, spaghetti, please. Thinking spaghetti was what you got at home. Hmm. And he said, just spaghetti? I said, yeah, yeah, don't worry, anything. just spaghetti. I went, okay. And this enormous bowl of very plain spaghetti and a pot of olive oil came out. And I looked at him, waiting for him to bring a sauce. But of course... <laughs> you got what you asked for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I'd be delighted. But then you were probably a bit nonplussed, weren't you? I was very nonplussed. Where's yeah. my bolognese, I thought. Where's my bolognese? <laughs> Marso sauce. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, it was a good place to start. Yes, quite. Well, from those embarrassing thoughts that you make in life, you realise actually that life is much more than you think it is. And it makes a good story now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we've got an olive tree in your time capsule. Beautiful. 
I shall look after it very carefully, I promise. I'm delighted to hear that. So, um, so shall we move on to the next one, then? Absolutely. That would be lovely. Thank you. I'm not going to be so serious about this. This is an odd thing. <laughs> and, uh, it is a podcast that so nobody's going to be able to see, which is possibly quite a good thing. So basically, chinning photographs. Right. Now, I don't know whether this is a universal thing or a family thing. I don't know whether there is a, a big movement. My children who are intelligent adults, <laughs> if, I, if we're all together and we, I leave my phone lying around, and if I've got, you know, I usually have my other phone, I have a very nice picture of them. My children then get my phone right onto the loo and they come back, and this has happened several times, and I've now given up changing it. And they come <laughs> back and I find a photograph of them, a chinning photographs. They're most ugly, really. So where they take the photograph from down below, Yes. And their chins. And they look like, so we get sort of chins, <laughs> chins, chins and eyes. And it, it's not very attractive look. And, <laughs> but I've now kind of become quite fond of the chinning photos. And it is, so I'm going to put in some chinning photos. Mm. So I think it's an interesting contrast to the kind of the whole social media thing, really showing yourself at your best. Yes. And I think it is a reaction against that kind of, that pressure to look perfect yeah. or to look in a certain way or to do that pout. Women are particular. I mean, I don't, think, I don't know. Are men as susceptible to business as women? I think they've become as susceptible, yes. That actually I would, and I, I know that I would hold the phone high because I've seen people do it. Yes. So you hold it in the sky and it's if you're looking down on yourself because apparently that makes you look slimmer. Is that right? Yes. I suppose yeah, whatever so. Whatever it is, it makes you look, yeah. I don't think I ever look sim. I don't think I'd, every photograph I've ever taken myself, I go, oh, look at the state of me. But yeah, I can see exactly why a chinning photograph would look really awful. Yeah, and I've, and I've got this great chinning photograph on my phone now. That's one that opens up, that I open up to on my phone, and uh, and it's the two my two children, uh, Flory and Sid, and uh, as I say, in, mature, intelligent adults. <laughs> um, uh, and they are not at their finest. But I have to say, I have grown very fond of this photograph. And I like to think it's because they're intelligent and they don't want to just fall into the getting a certain look and the pouting look. And the, yes. Big lips. Big lips. I like to think it's because they have a livelier approach to life and a more realistic approach to life. But it is, I think it's just that very interesting of the way of how photography has changed yes over centuries <laughs> i think so yeah. <laughs> um so um it, but it is interesting it's gone from you know when you see photographs of families or people from 19th century they all look very serious mm. very rarely see a smiling picture which is interesting and then photography has changed and matured and now somebody points a camera at you you automatically smile because that's what you do mm. It's quite, you know, that the way we portray ourselves or want to be portrayed has changed as photography has become more and more accessible. Well, it's funny as well, isn't it, that photography was a thing for you. You would have a photograph taken and then you would either put it on a sideboard or, or put it in a book and it would be yours. Whereas now a photograph is a thing to share with the world. Yes. And it's a facade in a way that mm. it seems much more a facade. This is a, a construct of me. Yeah. That I want to put out into the world. And I guess the chinning photograph is another form of 
construct, but it's a, a quite humorous approach to it. But it is about how we want to be portrayed and how we want to look. I like the fact that initially you were annoyed. You would go, oh, not another one of these things. So obviously your children, one of the reasons they did it is that they wound you up slightly. Totally. Yes. Well, this is a podcast night. That's why we read little so-and-sos. Um, <laughs> Little son says, Yes, it was, it was a let's annoy mum. And yeah. um, in a very sweet and charming, yeah. But for, I mean, it's interesting isn't it, that there's that whole change in the way we look at photographs. And I guess going forward with AI, that again, will we believe anything we ever see? Extraordinary. Going around at the moment is a photograph of Rishi Sunak. It seems to be all over the internet, sitting at a desk in number 10 with the union flag behind him. And he looks like some sort of superhero. I'm sure the well, it's it's absolutely absurd. He's got the same head, but his body is like it's been pumped up. I think it's been AI'd without a doubt. I'm sure, I'm sure. And oh, everybody's yeah. going, "Oh, that's a nice photograph." It's not a nice. It's not a photograph. You're crazy. No, of course there are so many photographs now that we take. Most photographs, I say they're for the world, but you, you do them, you put them out there, then they just disappear. We, I have thousands and thousands and thousands of photographs, and I rely entirely on things like uh, Facebook and those to, to remind me of them, to say, yeah. oh, seven years ago you took this photograph. And you go, oh, look at that brilliant photograph. But you'd never look back at it otherwise, I think. It's a shame, is it, that we don't do more photograph albums? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know you can make them have made up uh, online, and I keep thinking I should do it more because you're absolutely right. We have all those wonderful photographs, and they just disappear yeah. into the recesses of the thousands of other ones that we've got lurking on our phones and on our tablets and whatever. <laughs> yes. And having a photograph albums, you speak, you know, we have those family photographs. I must still have some old ones of my children when young, and just getting them out occasionally mm. and looking through them. It's such a pleasure. Oh, there's something you know where that. And we don't do that in the same way. It's much harder to do that now. No. I've got grandchildren who enjoy flicking through the photograph albums mm. and looking at their parents as children. And and I'm not sure that they would necessarily do that on a phone or a tablet. We you know most of us take so many photographs. Mm. Those ones that really matter get lost amongst all the other daily dross that we pump into our phones. Yeah, I think that's very true. Yes. In fact, I found in the bottom of a cupboard when I was doing that thing, which you eventually do, where you think I must tidy my life somewhat, uh, which I'm sure you did when you moved to Italy. Oh, yes. Yes, in a big way. But I found a bag, a plastic bag full of the photographs that I'd rejected, the ones I decided not to put in the album. Do you know what I mean? So so you'd get the thing back from the developers and then you'd go through them and you'd pick out sort of eight of the 24 photographs and the rest of them stayed in the packet. And I looked back through them and most of them are better than the photographs I take now. <laughs> but do you think they're better because you look back at them with hindsight? I mean, I, I'm just wondering whether they look better because you have such a saturation of photographs now. I don't know. Whether, whether I don't you- know. I, th- I mean, I'm, I did have a good camera. And I liked taking photographs, and I was very particular about taking photographs. So I think that every photograph I took, I sort of thought about it beforehand. I framed it in my mind, and yes, then I would, yes, yes, rather than just click. But some people do have that eye. I mean, my son has always had a good photographic eye, mm. and that hasn't changed. So when he was little, and back in the day, I did have a camera. He would always want to use it. I'd be going, oh, no, you know, blah, 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 blah. Oh, we don't use up all the, all the things. And then he'd take a photograph and it would always be a good one. I've been mean, mm. right. And he did end up 
studying photography. Right. He just has, uh, he can take a picture of something and I take a picture of exactly the same thing, I think. <laughs> he picture fascinating and brilliant and mine is kind of like, mm, so what? It's really simple things as well, isn't it? When you see people yeah. do that, it's just positioning themselves. So to either lowering themselves down so that the right angle or just the framing, just saying, well, I know I'm taking a picture of you, but what? actually you know, I'm going to put you in the corner of the picture. Just that sort of thing, the skill of it. Yeah. Not much skill, of course, with chinning photographs, but I'm going to take this idea. I'm going to be grabbing my children's phones and reversing <laughs> the game. Yes. 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 It's reversed. I think that's <laughs> a brilliant idea. I did actually have one that I sent to my children, which was sort of semi-chinning, and they got quite excited by it. Mum's chinning. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think it get you big bonus brownie points with them, ultimately, once they got over being annoyed. <laughs> once they've had the shock of it. <laughs> uh, the only worry would be if I sent it to them and they just thought it looked like a normal me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's number two. Your chilling photographs go in there. That's number two. So, um, moving swiftly on. Okay, it's ad break time, but we'll be back before you can say, Betty Botter bought some butter, but she said the butter's bitter. If I put it in my batter, it will make my batter better, but a bit of better butter will make my batter bitter. So she bought a bit of butter, better than the bitter butter, and she put it in her batter, and her batter was not bitter. So it was better, Betty Botter bought a bit of better butter. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, there you are. I told you we'd be back before you could say that. Let's get back to Sophie, shall we? I'm not sure let's go for the next big one or a small one. Okay, I'm going to move up slightly in size. This mm-hmm. is going back a bit. And I could have a Filofax. Oh, wow, yeah. Anybody younger will have no idea. What, well, they, they do still exist, actually. Filofax do exist. But this was what we all had, particularly in the media. We all had before. You got mobile phones that did mm-hmm. everything for you. They would mm-hmm. have the antecedents of the BlackBerry and all of these, uh, and, and then the smartphone. And a Filofax. And I was given, I think I still have it somewhere because I didn't think I could bear to throw it out. Somewhere I have my lovely leather file fan. So I was given when I left my first proper, proper job mm. after university. And I worked in a small production company uh, in, based in Camden Town. And I was given the file fan when I left and had it for eons full of bits of paper and all your 
phone numbers and notes and, and little mini wallets and yeah. all kinds of things. And it was, again, it was, you know, it's just going back to, I guess, to the 80s. Um, mm-hmm. And anybody who anybody had a file of facts, you know, yes. with them. Did you have a file of facts? I did have a file of facts. Well, yeah, you had to have everybody's telephone numbers. You had to know all the contacts for everything. It had your diary in it. It had everything in it. It had it all in one place. So it was really like your mobile phone is nowadays, isn't it? Yeah. But also very personal. Those things yeah. became very personal very quickly. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, absolutely. And they, and they, uh, mine was, mine was uh, sort of dark burgundy. What mm. colour was yours? Uh, mine was just brown leather. Brown leather. Nice. Yeah, very yeah. nice. Very stylish. Nice. Yeah. Yes. And there were, there were all kinds of little inserts you could get for them as well. Little ones <laughs> you could put your receipts in or maps. I had, or I had my tube map there. Yeah. Of course, that was very important. And it did make me feel like I was a proper media person. So I would. When I left university, I ended up working for this very small production company, mm. a company called Tattooist Limited, uh, who made documentaries and also did lots of pop videos. Oh, brilliant. Who was it in the 80s then? Who do you remember most fondly? So um, I ended up doing... With that company, with Tattooist, I was the general dog's body. So I mm-hmm. did secretarial, I did account. It's a great place to learn how to be a grown-up, really. Uh, and <laughs> um, I even did a little bit of gardening. Not a lot. But, um, <laughs> and then I learned about editing. This was pre-digital, so they had edit suites there as well. Mm. And it was a fascinating world to be on the edge of. Yes. It was also that extraordinary time, wasn't it, when suddenly television, which had been absolutely under the control of and the auspices of big organisations, BBC, ITV, that was it, you know. But suddenly, all these companies sprung up all over, particularly in in Camden Town, as you say, just all those companies, and suddenly they felt as if they were the future. Yes, in Camden Town, there were, yeah, lots of production companies, lots of pop videos being made. It was kind of a bit of a heyday. That's where breakfast television started as well, isn't it? TVAM oh, was there. Was it? Yes, just up over the canal. Yeah. With the egg, the boiled eggs in there. <laughs> boiled the, eggs, yes. So we were just 10 minutes walk from there. And that was the first one I worked in. And they were I mean, quite small, but they, it was just fascinating. And they were doing a lot of work for Channel 4. Um, it's like peripherally, I met lots of fascinating people who were making documentaries. Uh, yes, it, it was. it was a... Well, for me, it was a very exciting time. Mm. So I, I worked first in Camden Town, then I moved to another production company a bit further north in London, where I worked with Jonathan Ross when he was a researcher. Right. Since he made very good cups of tea all around, I think, yes. remember. I don't suppose he does many of those anymore. Um, <laughs> um, he was good fun. I like Jonathan Ross. Oh, great. But he was great fun. So it yeah. was a really good fun office. Then I ended up working freelance in pop videos all the time, swinging my file effects along with me. <laughs> um, and it was it was exciting times. And uh, who did I work with? I worked with, well, one of the very first pop videos I worked on as a production, I don't know, was a production assistant, production manager somewhere around there, was Dead or Alive. You spin me right round, baby, right, right round. Right round, baby, yeah. Yes, that was an eye-opener, I can tell you, um, uh, young, a young woman, um, 24-hour shoot. Not my favourite people, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I always thought it was very interesting working with singers. I mostly ended up working with on pop videos. 
Mm. And, you know, which people who have they treated the kind of the lower echelons of the setup? They were things sort of very, you know, very chummy and lovey-dovey with producers and directors when it came to production assistants, production managers, anyone else. They really divided into two camps, those who treated everybody with respect and, and decency, those who didn't. Mm. I mean, I met, a, I met a lot of extremely lovely people. You know, I did have my share of it. I remember one company I worked for, and they had, oh, well, they had a producer who I discovered was very untrustworthy, who would ask me to lie for her. And then when it was found out, I would be totally blamed. I mean, that's, that happens <laughs> in all kinds of companies, doesn't it? Mm. And people who were very prima donna-ish who thought because they were at a certain level. I was in my 20s and I looked sometimes at the people who were older, who were heading towards 40, thinking, too old for this. You <laughs> <laughs> look a bit sad. <laughs> yeah, so I did get out of it in the end, uh, more by luck than by chance. But I, I didn't want to go on. Did it inspire you, the idea of actually going into television then, you know, to make your own things? Or did that come much later? Yeah, I think it did. I mean, I, I loved being on a set. I loved filming, even if the people I was working with weren't always wonderful. Mm. I did meet a lot of very wonderful people, and I had great fun, appallingly badly paid, um, <laughs> long out. But it was exciting, and it was fun. I don't know whether that goes as far as glamorous, but... Um, and I did I think at that time that I wanted to be in front of the camera. I don't know whether I would at that time have thought that I wanted to be in front of the camera because I wasn't a singer and I wasn't an actor. Mm. But it was interesting learning how television, pop video, whatever, are constructed and how it works and realising that I found all of that fascinating. Yes. So, I, yes, I guess there was some kind of maybe a seed there. It was only later on when I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and somebody asked me if I'd be interested in presenting a cookery program. That I kind of felt it gave me it gave me that confidence because I did I actually knew what I was going into. Yeah, quite. And as you said, I think probably quite early on, you know, you were aware of the conceit of it. You know that in fact we are making a program, we are making a television program, and I understand that I will have to reshoot that mixing of that egg fifty times. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you do often have to if you're doing very a very much a how-to program a mm. how to cook this in detail you are going to have to film every recipe at least three times assuming nothing goes wrong yes and then if something goes wrong whether it's the cook's fault whether it's something to do with a technical issue whatever you're going to have to do it yet another time or mm. uh, around it somehow one program i made I was doing um, a mango tart tartan, oh. which is a jolly nice thing. And, yeah, uh, I can imagine. And I had one pan that I like to do. So I make a tart tartan. I, I, I mean, I do make them. I have to say, I do make a pretty good tart tartan. But <laughs> um, you do, I think, well, you have to have a pan that you know. And I'm sorry. So I insisted that the only way I could do this tart tartan, mango tart tartan, was with my heavy cast iron frying pan, which nearly got into the into the time capsule. So it was my grandma's, and I've used it. Uh. However, it didn't in the end. And normally, we would have had an emergency one set up, you know, one that you have in the background, so you have one ready and made. And because I had, I was insisting I had to use this pan because I wouldn't, I wasn't I was too anxious to do it in any other pan in front of the camera. <laughs> we had one chance and one chance only. And we got to that bit. We had a time. We had to turn it out. Mm. 
don't know. Usually they turn out pretty well. Anyway, there was a moment in the studio. It was right at the end of the day and everybody was tired. And I see the director quite tense because he knew that if it didn't turn out, we would have to go back and do another two hours. Yeah. Anyway, it was all right. It was all right. But it was a very scary moment. It came out beautiful. Very scary. Restaurants often use puff pastry. Mm. I think it ought to be a sort of a, a short crust or a sweetish. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm so sure that's that right. Crumbly, short crusty. Against and not too thick. You don't want it. To- not too thick. No. But the apples need to be really well caramelized. Mm-hmm. Don't hold it. Sometimes you see recipes where they make the caramel separately and pour it in, and then the apple. So wrong. That's cheating, isn't it? That's just cheating. Yeah. That's because it's not as risky. That's why. Absolutely. You need that element of risk to your <laughs> With uh, all food. Yes. <laughs> just to keep you on your toes when you're cooking. Well, I'm sure that the whole of the people who work at Apple will thank you for putting that uh, file of facts into the time capsule because I'm sure that's exactly what inspired the iPhone. They must have looked at it and thought, what we need is something that does all these things. And there it is. I wonder if that did go through because it was. It was absolutely... Oh, you had a little calculator in it, all sorts of things, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. It was kind of the analogue version of a... The analog version of a smartphone. Yeah, yeah. I remember the first time I saw somebody walking along the streets. They must have an earphone in talking to them, and I thought they were completely bonkers. (laughs) Oh, oh, that person walking along just chatting. I still think that when I see people. (laughs) But um, the final facts that'll come back, that'll have its day again, I'm sure. And if uh, if it is opened in 200 years' time, people will go, what a good idea. Thought, yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> right, that's three things, Sophie, we put in there. Okay, so my fourth one, and this is, um, it does have to be quite a large time capsule. I mean, you've already got a tree in it, so it is already quite big. That's all right, yeah. I'm going to put a Neolithic dolmen, obviously. A Neolithic dolmen, what, like those um, great big rock tombs? Yeah. Amazing. Are you a particular fan of them? Uh, well, I was brought up in a household that hunted out dolmens. My father was, uh, my father who wrote a lot about the countryside, he was a writer, poet. He was passionate about dolmens and prehistoric stones. Even. So I spent mm. a large part of my childhood with my parents. Wherever we travelled, he'd hunt down the local dolmens. And often if we were driving, we spent a lot of time in France and we would often stop at a dolmen for lunch. If it was one with good access, we would actually eat lunch on top of the dolmen. <laughs> so, we, yes, the, the going looking for these prehistoric dolmens was very much part of my childhood. And I mm. still, where I am now, live now, there's a dolmen, very pretty one, not far from me uh, at a village, just outside a village called Montalbano. Nothing mm. to do with the Montalbano, uh, Detective Montalbano on TV. No. Very charming little dolmen that is sometimes called Tavolo dei Paladini, the Table of the Paladins. Well, I think Paladins were actually the Crusaders, weren't they? That's right, yeah, I think they were. So, yes, yeah, so I'm going to have a dolmen in because I, it's, a, it's a habit that was ingrained in me as a child, the wish to go and see dolmens, and it's something that I have done on and off throughout my life, it's gone dolmen hunting. And, and they are intriguing, aren't they? They are. They're extraordinary. They're Neolithic burial tombs, and you but you get them all around the world. Yep. Lots in the UK. There's some very fine ones in Jersey. Right. Well, I used to go to Jersey quite often, many years ago, 
uh, once a year, and I will go up and find dolmens around Jersey, which is interesting. Lots in France, down here as well. But did you know, this is a strange thing, was, I really want to go to Korea because, not for many reasons, but Korea <laughs> has more dolmens than anywhere else in the world. How extraordinary. They have over, I'm looking at my numbers now because I wrote it down because I thought, wow, it's just yeah. it's like 30,000. Ah, oh, I've lost my notes now. You need a file effects. Yeah, I need a file effects. I don't totally. <laughs> <laughs> they have thirty thousand dolmens in Korea, and it's it, they have more than any other country. They've got about forty percent of the world's dolmens are in Korea. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, that something like that would be universal? Yeah, and when you think, I mean, it, 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 these um, sort of dolmens were built. I don't know whether they can age them precisely. They were Neolithic, so hmm. uh, what do we know? Eight thousand eighty. Hold on, I'm going to have to look at my notes again. Yeah, eight thousand years ago. Sort of in a way before the pyramids. Before the pyramids. I mean, way before. And they were separate. So you find them in Korea, you find them all around Asia. I mean, you do. You find them all over the place. And who knows whether that is because people travelled and passed on these ideas. And they weren't easy things to, to build. I mean, they're huge, huge. They had the, the upright stones and then these massive big ones over the top. Like so, but they weigh tons. I mean, it is not something you just do casually. No, even the smallest of dolmen is a very deliberate, thought-out construction. And they're not sure how they did them. In many yeah. cases, are they? I mean, there's a theory that, in fact, what you did was you put the upright stones there, and then you put lots of smaller stones round it and built a mound, which you yeah. could push the large stone up and then rest it on top of the other stones, and then you removed the smaller stones again. To construct something like that is astonishing. It, it obviously was incredibly important how people were buried. But hugely important. And yes, and it is, it is a construction method which is relatively common, mm-hmm. and that did require a huge amount of community effort. It's not just let's get in and cut a builder from next door. This is something that the whole village, settlement, whatever, would have to work together on. You can't yes. do it with one or two people. It's it's a big, big affair. Yeah, I always wonder whether it's in fact a signal that in fact they were always working as a community or that they had someone very powerful at the top who said, you have to do this. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe it's like a pharaoh building the pyramids. Yeah. Well, maybe that's just a descendant of it. You know, you have the big boss. But there were a lot of them around. I mean, of course, they must have been for important people, important families. Yes. What's incredible, though, is that they've survived. But it does take a lot of effort to put the stones there. It also takes quite a lot of effort to take them away again. Yes. And perhaps that is why so many have survived comparatively intact. It's because it's a bigger job to take them. <laughs> yeah. They're much easier. If you're going to build your own whatever it is, it's much easier to cut your stones up into smaller bits. Yes, just hack away at it. Yeah. Hack away and to, yeah, and have little bits and, and be able to carry them, maybe not easily, but comparatively easily. Yeah. But actually, when those things are made of tons and tons of granite just perched on the top of a tiny point of rock, it's mystical, isn't it? Yeah, I think they often are. They often have that otherworldly feel to them, and that may well be something that we just impose. But the thought of those people, so many generations, kind of millennia before us, Mm -hmm. and that continuity of people moving around that space and caring about that space, there is something so moving about that connection 
that even if you have, even if you're sitting having a picnic on the top, mm-hmm. and you think, well, did they? I mean, they must have, when they were building them, they must have had food and stock for, for food. People have been there connected to those slabs of stone for so long, which is I mean, it's the strangest feeling, really. Yeah, no, I think it puts you in uh, puts you in your place in a way. And we used to. Uh, like my dad was, he was very good on all kinds of history and things. Um, he was also very good on plants and music. But he also, the other stones that he loved to visit, as a child, I found less interesting than the old men. But with hindsight, he was, um, uh, now he always called them polissoirs, which the French one, the where people used to sharpen their tools, polishing up axes and whatever else. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we, also, we used to go down long tracks. It wasn't always the best thing when you're uh, a <laughs> um, uh, Can't we go to the beach, Dad? <laughs> oh, not another bloody polished world there. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we, we did a lot of going and hunting strange things down country lanes. He would spend his evenings poring over the various books. And again, didn't have internet then, so it wasn't something. You have to go and find the books and the maps that identified. Uh, so, you know, that was another thing I was thinking about putting in, was an ordnance survey map. And mm. uh, my dad, I, I love a good ordnance survey map. And <laughs> dad would have maps and old books and he'd be sitting there spread out on the table identifying where things were. Yes, looking for the ancient monument sign. Yes, it was, I mean, that's, that's how I always picture him sitting there. The place we used to go to in France was uh, a little bit, a very, very pretty little village called uh, Tour, which is a cave village. Mm. Uh, so a lot of cavey, stony stuff going on in my new. And we had a cave there. We had a cave that we lived no. in for three or four months of the year. How extraordinary. See, now people would think poet, you're thinking romantic, disorganised, just everything's rather chaotic. But in fact, the opposite is true, isn't it? The, the poetry, in a way, is distilling things down to important details and cutting away all the rest. So, in fact, that sort of mind that would pore over something and think about it in great detail before committing to something... That is the mind of a poet. I guess you are, you know, I hadn't really thought of it like that. But yes, you're absolutely right. And just picking out that very essence of the word, yeah. the word that just says what you want it to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what I call him organised. <laughs> he was um, he was a lot older than my mum. And he was of a generation where women had always done everything for him, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. So when it came to organisation, that was not his job, except... When we were leaving, either leaving from the UK to go to France or vice versa, he was the only one who could pack the car right. <laughs> that was the one time when I noticed organisation mattering. Yes. <laughs> and I don't want to be sexist. Well, no, I'm going to be sexist. It's quite a male thing, really. Yeah, it? that and barbecues. That and barbecues. And, and of course, maps. The, the claim that women can't read maps. It's a. It's an extraordinary. Yeah, like uh, but you see, that's because you were never allowed to read a map. I did. Like, I. I just really love maps. Again, Marks and Sachs is quite old, doesn't it? My children can't don't really get and I said, I keep saying to them, but a map is wonderful because you can spread it out and you can join, you can see how places relate to each other. Yeah. You're looking at the little phone or the screen, you don't see things in the same way. No. When your ordnance survey map might well mark the dolmen, or it might mark an abandoned village, or it might mark this or that or a clump of trees. Yes. In the way that we're losing. And in fact, the topography of the land. So you would be able to tell from the lines whether you were going to be going up a steep hill or a gradual hill or no hill at all. 
brilliant things. Brilliant. So there we go. So that's all coming out of Dolland. <laughs> Fantastic. So that's four things that you've put in. Okay. So, Sophie, we've got one more, but uh, really it's supposed to be something you want to put in there you'd like to banish from your world. Okay. I'm having a real problem over deciding which one. Well, I've got two that I'm thinking of. Mm -hmm. One of them is something I just don't like, and that's licorice. (laughs) Right. I just don't like licorice. Weirdly, I do like aniseed, but I do not like licorice. The other thing I'm thinking of putting in that I don't like is a phrase which I really loathe, which is, when somebody starts their sentence with, no offence, but. <laughs> and you know that what they're about to say is offensive. And I think it's kind of like a get-out clause, don't they? Yeah. You know, if I say no offence, but, then I can be as offensive as I like. And nobody's going to care. Well, I do care. I think it's a phrase that actually, maybe it should be no offence, but. Yeah, it, it's obvious, isn't it, that somebody is going to offend you when they say that. It's almost as bad as somebody saying, I, I mean, I'm not racist, but you go, well, you bloody are. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I licorice. I don't know. What is it about licorice that you don't like? I'd say if you like drinking a perno and those sort of things. Cause in fact, oh, no, I don't like perno either. Right. Okay. <laughs> I like except in cooking. It works very well in cooking, but I, as a drink. No. Yeah. I remember years ago having a boyfriend who shocked me rigid by ordering Perno and Coke. <laughs> really loads. And I should have known that point. Uh, that's not going to work, though. <laughs> <laughs> and I look back on this, not thoughtfully now, and I think, did he order that because it's actually what he really wanted? Or did he order it and he wanted to look like he knew what he was doing and he couldn't think of anything else? I don't know. So now I look back on it more sympathetically. Yeah. It might have been kind of trying to look like a grown-up and know what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, there are lots of things you look back on more sympathetically as you get older, aren't there? But I was yeah. once in a French bar and, and uh, nobody spoke any English and I didn't speak very much French at all. And the woman said to me, would you like a drink? And so I went, um, a perno? And she went, oh... And then walked out from behind the bar and was gone for about 10 minutes. And she came back with a dusty bottle of Perno. Obviously, she'd had to crack open a new bottle, which she'd hidden away somewhere. And I'd only asked for it because I thought the other men at the bar were drinking it. And I, I said, ooh, Rika? And she went, oh, merde. <laughs> she had loads of that. <laughs> Do you remember when you enjoyed it? I enjoy drinking a drink in the country that it's supposed to be drunk in. I can drink Domestica wine in Greece. Yeah. I can drink Perno and Rica in France. I can drink Amoras. Are they called Amaros? Amaros, yes. Amaros. In Italy, you know, and some of those are really disgusting. Yeah. But you walk into a bar, you order one, you drink it. It feels right, I think. So everything in its place. Yeah. Do you ever bring back those, you know, a bottle of said <laughs> whatever liquor is? Those rather odd ones that you find on holiday. Yes. And you, you bring them back. <laughs> I think I have a bottle of Fernabranca, <laughs> which I've had most of my life. <laughs> I did actually find when I was when I was moving to Italy, I was getting rid of stuff back in the UK. I did find some very, very suspect bottles at the back of cupboards. <laughs> and I opened a couple of them thinking, well, you never know, this could be something that's matured beautifully over decades. And they were universally unpleasant. Mm. And there are there are some odd things that one brings back. Oh, but there are also some quite nice things to bring back. You discover I once bought, purely on the basis of the label, mm. you come across Italian liqueur called Cinar, which is an artichoke amaro. Wow. 
I do like quite bitter flavors, not very bitter, but quite bitter flavors. Mm. And one of the things I've noticed or one of, uh, about Puglia is Puglia, Pugliese, Puglians, Pugliese, love slightly bitter flavors. They're very, and Italians have, have quite a taste for bitter flavors, like the Amaro. Yes. And Chimar is very bitter. It's made from artichokes. And it's actually, when it, the way it really, if you have it on, on ice with lots of soda water in, it, it is very refreshing. And also you can make a spritz with it. So we now have possibly the most popular drink, summer drink in the world now, the Aperol spritz. Yes. I like a Campari spritz, because that's mm-hmm. a little bit more bitter. And then you can go one step further with a Chinar spritz. Right. Lovely. It's harder to get hold of the Chinar. I should try it next time I'm over. Yeah, but I would try it in Italy rather yes. than bring a bottle back. I did bring a bottle back to my parents, and I think that probably languished somewhere for a <laughs> very long time. It's got a fantastic label on it. That beautiful, some designs of 1950s design that the Italians uh, did so well. Yes. Which is a beautiful, beautiful design. Well, you're making me very jealous. There you are sitting there in Puglia. I mean, I, 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 you know, I don't mean to be offensive, but... <laughs> be careful. What a terrible phrase. I'm going to put them both in there. I think you should have extra things in your time capsule oh. because it's for mankind, so I think we can be generous. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, I'm delighted. Neither of them have to take up a lot of them. You've got all no. that room. You know, the dolmen is a big thing. There's plenty of cavity inside. Yes. I mean, how lovely. You've got that framed by an olive tree and some idiot sitting under a tree saying, oh, I don't mean to be offensive, but <laughs> and we all know to walk away from that person. So absolutely beautiful. Well, Sophie, I don't know if we have met in a past life or where we've met in our lives. We may well have crossed paths, but I wish I'd met you more. How lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for giving me your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. And come to Puglia. I shall. Hold it. Ciao. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Sophie Grigson. Thank you to Sophie for being my guest. Thank you for listening. Thank you if you have or are about to subscribe to this podcast. Thanks for clicking on five stars as a rating. And thank you very much if you've taken the time to write a review of this podcast. Thank you for following me and my time capsule on social media, for listening to the theme tune on Spotify, and of course, thanks to Pass the Peas music for composing and performing it so well. A massive thank you to anyone who gives us £2.99 a month by subscribing to ACAST Plus for ad-free episodes and a bonus episode every week. And finally, thanks to ACAST for putting this cast-off podcast out. Oh, I nearly forgot. A huge thanks to John Fenton Stevens for producing this podcast so beautifully. Right, see you soon. But before I go, here's a quick food-related joke of sorts. I went for a lovely Indian meal the other day, and the waiter said to me, Curry okay? I said, not right now, but I might do Sweet Caroline after I've had my dinner. Hmm, no one thanking me for that, I notice. I don't blame you. Bye. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves 
without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 